Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journeys. Ultimately, we're all going to get to scale if we can all really focus in on what we do really well and then form great partnerships with other organizations that do their thing really well. So we see that there's a way that data can really enable and help target building of new infrastructure. Because of course, countries have budgets, they have money, they can apply it and they want to. And one of the challenges we often see is just that there's not enough visibility to really figure out where the infrastructure should go to be most effective. I'm very pleased today to introduce Nithya Ramanathan. Nithya is the president and co-founder of Nextleaf Analytics, a nonprofit based in Los Angeles, California. Nextleaf's mission is to build, scale, and support wireless technologies and data analytics tools to measure the impact of public health and environmental interventions in the field. Nextleaf is currently focusing on key projects in supporting vaccine delivery in developing countries and evaluating the impact of improved cook stoves. So thank you very much, Nithya for taking the time to speak to inspiring social entrepreneurs today. It's a great honor to talk to you and have an opportunity to hear your story and some of the lessons on your journey as a social innovator. So thank you very much. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. So how did you end up doing in this kind of world? <laughs> I had an interesting journey. I'm an engineer and I worked, I, I worked at Hewlett Packard and Intel and a lot of the sort of big um, Silicon Valley companies, uh, established companies. And I got a little tired of that. And so I ended up getting a PhD and met this really lovely advisor. And, um, she let me do really a, a whatever I wanted. So I got to spend time in Bangladesh and spend a lot of time in the field looking at how computer science and wireless sensing can be melded with um, environmental and other um, public sector problems. And so along the way, I discovered that I didn't want to stay in academia, but I really was interested in this idea of um, being able to solve big, tough problems um, in the public sector. Uh, and so one of the things that happened early on, actually, is uh, through my thesis work in computer science developing wireless sensors, I had spent some time in Bangladesh uh, monitoring arsenic to try to understand um, why there were such toxic levels of arsenic in the groundwater. And it was a really big investment. But the thing that kind of tortured me was that, you know, I was just this young, clueless grad student and every day, um, tens and hundreds of the house, the people who lived in this small village would come and look at what we were doing and they would express their gratitude every day and say, oh, thank you so much for trying to address this problem. And I kept explaining, like, I'm just studying it. I mean, I, I don't know what the solution will be. But, um, you know, at the end, we kind of had this mini discovery and it was published or whatever, but nothing actually happened for the village. And that was really devastating for me. Um, people really kind of trusted me to help keep their children safe. And I did nothing for that. And so in the end, I raised some money and I built a well. Um, but I knew that within six months or a year, that well would be 
in misuse or that it would, would be broken and, and there, I, there weren't any sort of repairs for it. And to me, this haunts me to this day. Um, that, that sort of single investment and sort of what I felt was a betrayal haunts me to this day. And so I really kind of came out of grad school saying, okay, I've got to do something that's useful. I've got to find a problem and then I'm going to build solutions that will address that problem and they will be sustainable and scalable. Um, and so that's really what drives me uh, to this day. Wow. I spoke to Scott Harrison. I don't know whether you're familiar with what he does in Charity Water. He talks a lot about yeah. this question of, you know, finding out what's actually literally happening with wells and, you know, being able to yeah. get feedback information. And that's a really important part of what they do. That's right. Yeah, we have, a, a, we have a, I, I've, of course, followed Charity Water. And I think, you know, they're really trying to get remote monitoring into wells specifically to enable after sale service. Um, I, I think increasingly we're all seeing that this is the big gap in the sector is, OK, you can, you know, you can distribute stuff. You can hand it out for free. You can charge people, whatever you distribute it. But if you don't ensure that there's a healthy market to fix problems um, when they arise in whatever it is, it's a bed, it's a cook stove, it's a house, it's a fridge. I don't care. Um, the thing is not going to get used. I'm still baffled by the fact that in the public sector, we're not talking about this. It's just not sexy. It's not sexy. I mean, let's just call it what it is. We just need maintenance technicians. We need maintenance technicians who are financially incentivized, who have tools and training and spare parts. They have access to a, a supply chain uh, to get all of those things. And that when they go and deliver a professional service, they're paid to do it. And I don't care who pays them, but let's make sure it's a sustainable mechanism. How important is this, this question of maintenance? One part of it is clearly about sustainability, but how important is this question? I think it's crucial. Um, it's so funny. I just got off a phone call um, with a, a lovely academic who uh, we were talking about. He studies solar panel and other sort of rural household um, adoption of, of clean energy and um, other related uh, interventions. And ultimately, one of his conclusions also was that the, the major barrier to large scale and sustained adoption is the lack of maintenance and repair technicians. Um, and we talked about why is this? And, you know, his theory is that people are so focused on the distribution and let's get this thing out there, the sort of build it and they will come approach. And that no one's thinking about adoption five years down the road. It's just um, sort of not a question that anyone asks. So, um, you know, when I am working with collaborators, countries, et cetera, increasingly, I think people are starting to ask this question. People are starting to say, OK, number one, how much is it going to cost me? Number two, what's the impact going to be? And then number three, it's not happening all the time. Those first two questions I get asked for everything. Um, that we do. But the third question people are starting to ask, well, what's the lifetime of this thing? And and finally, the fourth is, how am I going to fix it when it breaks? So people are starting to get wise to this question. But I am personally a little baffled that, you know, we're however many decades into, um, you know, public sector work and, um, you know, maintenance is is only now sort of um, coming up as a, as a, as a question. But I'm, I'm really excited that it is because I, also see um, the data shows, um, the, the field experiences show that maintenance is is the big barrier. I love talking about maintenance, but no, you know, it's very unsexy. No, I, I was thinking it, it needs a buzzword. 
<laughs> maintenance sounds it does sound dull it kind of you need kind of a next generation or you know life prolonging it. I don't know but there's something that somebody comes up with a, a buzzword to to describe this you know ensuring the longevity of these and you know mechanisms and, and investments I guess you very clearly identify this what's at stake we talk a lot about waste and impact at next life and that really I think ultimately what's at stake is um, impact and lives. I mean, we cannot deliver the impact that we're all talking about delivering without maintenance or, you know, as you much more elegantly call it, life prolonging uh, services. Um, you know, I think the whole thing is at stake. I think we're all wasting our time. We're all wasting our money, our time, our resources, um, everything. If, if we don't talk about how are you going to fix these things when they break, whether it's a water well or a cook stove or a fridge that stores vaccines. How have you approached this problem? I mean, the technology and the ideas behind this predate the actual, you know, NextLeaf itself, I think. Can you tell me a little bit about the actual technology? NextLeaf builds sensors. NextLeaf builds wireless sensors in order to collect data that could not otherwise be collected. But what we've learned along the way is that most of our job is actually to ensure and help figure out that the human resources and the other infrastructure is in place so that people can act on that data. So what we found early on is that a lot of people know they need data. Uh, ministries of Health, um, you know, in very poor countries, uh, everybody knows they need more data. They need more visibility. But Often the conversation starts there. And so what we found is that, yes, we, we build, we design, we manufacture sensors. Um, we work with fantastic partners to do that. But most of our job is sitting in the clinic, um, sitting in the rural household, sitting with the stove manufacturers, um, sitting with the vaccine distributors, um, and really understanding, okay, we're going to collect this data. We're going to get it to you. It's going to be in real time. It's going to be fantastic. But what are you going to do with that data? And okay, great. You know what you're going to do. You're going to fix the fridge. You're going to, you know, provide training for the stove. But who's going to do that? How much are they paid? Um, do they have the standard operating procedures? Do they have a job description that enables them to do this? So actually, most of our job is really getting into those questions. So really getting into the nitty gritty with our customers. Um, and our customers really range um, from, like I said, stove distributor, improved cook stove distributors who are trying to get improved cook stoves out to women to ensure that indoor air pollution is reduced for them uh, for improved health outcomes. Um, some of our customers are ministries of health um, in a number of countries um, where they're trying to ensure that the vaccines that they've purchased and distributed um, and administered remain effective and are stored properly at the cold temperatures that the vaccines need to be stored at. Um, so we have a range of different customers, but ultimately we're trying to help our customers. Uh, we're trying to help our customers deliver whatever they're trying to deliver and to do it in a way that ensures that they are having the impact that they would like to have. It sounds like a very, as you said, nitty gritty, very detailed kind of work. How do you scale something like that? Yes, that is a great question. So one of the things that we're finding is that I think there's a couple of key things to scale. So one is always cost. We're constantly looking 
um, to reduce the cost of the technologies we manufacture and the delivery of the analytics. And so to reduce costs, we do a couple of things. One, we partner with um, institutions, uh, companies like Vodafone, for example. Um, we ensure that the partnerships we develop there's sort of very strong alignment of incentives where Vodafone's not donating anything. They see a clear business case to scaling. And so from Vodafone's perspective, if we scale and succeed, then they scale and succeed. So those are the types of partnerships that um, we develop um, with a number of private sector companies in order to uh, get to scale as well as get to cost reduction. Um, the second component of scale is around the sort of nitty gritty work that we were just talking about. And there we're starting to see patterns. And that's what's kind of cool about where we sit. Because we have a technology that is inherently scalable, potentially because it's based on wireless monitoring where the data flows to a dashboard and um, somebody can sit in a, in a central location and really kind of get visibility into the nitty gritty of what's going on. And so the key is to find those patterns that we can then build into the system so that we can replicate and scale more rapidly. And so that's what we're focusing on now is what are those patterns? And those patterns aren't always in the data and the analytics. Um, like I mentioned, sometimes those patterns are in just writing a clear set of standard operating procedures, which we've now done. And now, you know, every one of our customers who gets our device also gets these SOPs and they get a clear training on them. Um, and increasingly, as we start to scale in more countries, um, we're working in roughly about eight countries right now on the vaccine monitoring side of things um, to ensure that vaccines stay safe. Increasingly, we're seeing that there's a lot more replicability with lo a lot less effort on our end because those patterns are starting to play out. And I guess one of the issues here, and you talked about payment, uh, I guess incentives are important. What do you see? What have you seen? What initiatives excite you in terms of the, the potential and the possibilities for, you know, uh, working out ways of building in this monitoring and replacement and upgrading of technologies? We're really excited about a couple of areas right now. So one is uh, refrigeration, also something very unsexy. <laughs> so uh, worldwide, vaccines are, um, of course, purchased and distributed. Um, and about 120 million children are born every year. About 100 million of those kids receive vaccines. So there's a major push globally to figure out how do we get vaccines to the remaining 20 million? But we're actually interested in a slightly different problem, and this is starting to get global attention now, which is how do we ensure that the 100 million vac children that receive vaccines are receiving vaccines that are effective? So what we're focused on, though, is how do you ensure that the vaccines uh, stay cold? And they have to stay cold all the way from the manufacturer all the way to the time that they're administered to children. And so we have... Um, been working on this for about four years now and have developed a uh, small remote temperature sensor that sits in refrigerators and sends out text messages uh, to the appropriate people when the refrigerator fails. And so, of course, there's a lot behind this because it's not just about sending out the text message, but who responds to that message and what do they do? And ultimately, how do you get this fridge fixed? So that's really the bulk of the work that we've been excited about recently. And so, uh, we're working in a number of countries, including India and Mozambique and Kenya, um, to really look at how can advanced wireless technologies like these sit in very rural clinics um, with very minimal resources and still ensure that these vaccines, by the time they get to kids, are safe. 
And by the way, what's interesting about this is, I mean, we built this technology um, starting in Kenya and Mozambique, but actually increasingly um, we're learning about um, these types of fridge failures here in the U.S. And so, for example, very recently, a, a very big hospital chain, very prominent hospital chain in the Bay Area um, had a major refrigerator failure and they had to revaccinate uh, 4,000 children um, because of it. And so um, increasingly, it's it's a problem everywhere. But what I find um, very exciting about that is that we designed this technology in Mozambique, but um, there's so many applications that we find here, which I think is really interesting and sort of the reverse often of, of you know, traditionally maybe how things have worked in the sector where often you take technologies that were designed um, in the Western context and, and try to see how they might fit um, in the poorer context. So I think it's really neat to kind of see this this flow of innovation. Um, and another another area that we're really excited about is looking at improved cook stoves. So um, this area of essentially there's there's far too much smoke in inside houses, and as a result, roughly four million women and children um, primarily die a year. And so this is one of the largest causes of death worldwide. And more people die of exposure to indoor air pollution than uh, HIV, malaria, and TB. And, and yet it's, it's, you know, not, not as sort of widely discussed of an issue. And one of the challenges is that the, the cure, if you, if you will, for indoor air pollution is getting better cooking and better lighting, um, cleaner technologies into houses. And so it's, it's ultimately a distribution problem. Um, but what's happened is that this distribution problem remains not very well understood because we all have very little insight into how rural households, um, operate, um, and, and what sort of ensures that these clean technologies are appropriately designed, appropriately used, have the appropriate support services. And so through instrumenting improved stoves with sensors, we've learned a couple of things. We've learned that women are very motivated to use cook stoves. They see the smoke reduction in their kitchens right away. Um, but often one of the biggest barriers is that the stove breaks and there's nobody to come fix it. And the woman has very little recourse. So through the sensor technology, we are working and working more uh, proactively with stove distributors and repair services now to see how we can get and help set up more well-incentivized supply chains to deliver these types of services that are needed. But the second thing that we found is that women may want the cleaner technologies, but they often are very expensive. So there's a real affordability challenge here that we need to be talking about in the improved cook stove sector. And so we're looking at how do you connect women directly with, for example, the carbon market to ensure that they can get paid when they reduce their carbon footprint, the same way that a coal company might be paid to reduce their coal their carbon footprint. Um, and then she can repurpose these funds to address the affordability challenge and to actually be able to afford the technologies and the cook stoves that she needs. So we're sort of looking at um, how do we kind of address some of the bigger problems in the improved cook stove sector and bring data to, to address those problems. It sounds like um, once you start to get involved in a sector or a niche and the potential of what you're doing starts to multiply 
in the sense that once you start to get the data, then you start to see the possibilities. And there are many other steps, I suppose, that you can take to help. There's a lot of work that could be done. How do you think about that in terms of the boundaries? What's your role and somebody else's role? And what does that mean about how you think about growing? That is a great question. And we don't have an answer for that. I think in this sector, we all need to do a better job of uh, focusing on what we're good at. Ultimately, we're all going to get to scale if we can all really focus in on what we do really well and then form great partnerships with other organizations that do their thing really well. I think that's the key to scale. And the organizations that I see that are successful in that, um, in, in achieving that kind of scale, um, I think have probably really figured out the right balance of what what they should take on versus what they need to um, partner with um, other organizations on. And so I think for us, I will be honest, I don't think we know that balance yet, but I'll give you a metaphor that somebody gave me recently. It doesn't exactly answer your question, but I really love it. So I think what Nextleaf, we see ourselves as being an enabling technology to help allocate and apply resources more effectively. So what I mean by that is, you know, in the countries where we work, there's not a lot of infrastructure. And by infrastructure, I mean roads and power and um, distribution channels. And so resources are, are very scarce. And so we see that there's a way that data can really enable and help target building of new infrastructure. Because of course, countries have budgets, they have money, they can apply it, and they want to. And one of the challenges we often see is just that there's not enough visibility to really figure out where the infrastructure should go to be most effective. And so somebody was giving me this metaphor recently about how um, at times colleges, when they would build new pathways, uh, new sidewalks for students, if you take an aerial view, those the sidewalks look completely nonsensical. But basically what they would do is look for patterns in the grass to see where students would naturally walk. And then they would build the pathways according to those sort of downtrodden parts of grass. And I kind of see what we're trying to do as being very similar. So we're trying to build the picture using data so that countries can then more effectively target their minimal resources um, exactly where they need to go um, with something like laser-like focus so that they can achieve the impact that they need. And so as we look to scale, we are sort of, I think, going to focus in on that, that specific area, which is really analytics, and look to partner with countries and the private sector and public sector to kind of deliver all the services that the data is showing are needed. So ultimately, like, are we going to actually pour the concrete for that sidewalk? No. But I do think right now, as we're starting to grow, because we ourselves don't yet know the power and the extent to which this data can be used, I do think that there's a lot of value in us trying in a very small way to prototype and deliver these services, even if we have to do it somewhat ourselves just so that we can understand it, but always being clear with our customers, with our funders, with our partners, 
that NextLeaf long-term is not going to deliver the service. We're just prototyping it right now so that we can kind of test our data services. But ultimately, we are a data company and we're very focused on that. Yes, fascinating. I can understand that you say these prototypes, because then ultimately, in a sense, that makes it clearer to you how the data is going to be used and helps you refine what you're actually doing because you're seeing, you know, where it goes and the, the next steps. Yeah, that's exactly right. You're an engineer at heart or certainly an engineer by training. Now you're running this organization. How has that journey been for you? What have been one or two of the challenges and what has been some support for you in terms of either organizations or people on this journey? Gosh, I mean, so one of the things that I talk about and feel so strongly is that we're all our organizations. I mean, often I'm the face of the organization, but really it's it's Nextleaf, the team. Um, that completely does this. So I could go away and Nextleaf would, would be totally fine and continue to deliver the impact that we deliver. You know, Nextleaf has been so lucky to have some really incredible mentors and supporters along the way. It's really hard to even begin to recognize everybody. But I think some of the people that have been most inspirational to us are the nurses in the field who are using our sensors to ensure that vaccines stay safe. Ultimately, they literally are on the front lines. To be able to see and witness the commitment that almost all of these nurses have to their patients is just inspiring. I think a really similar inspiration has come from seeing women who use cook stoves. I think their rural women tend to be, on the one hand, so connected in their community, but in terms of getting access to sort of outside larger resources, you know, relatively disconnected. And so to see how resourceful rural women are about um, getting cook stoves, demanding them, um, trying to get them fixed, trying to ensure that they keep running because of the, the potential health benefits that they see is so inspiring. So I think those two things definitely keep us at Nextleaf really inspired. Absolutely. You know, you've got a board of directors, you've got directors and you've got another a group of advisors. Is it, You've obviously, you know, built up the support network and so forth. What's your advice for other, you know, social entrepreneurs and social innovators wanting to build this kind of resource and the structure on their journey? I'm really bad with advice, honestly. I think it it requires... I, I always think about all the things that we've done wrong. <laughs> I mean, I think there's so much serendipity in this sector. You know, I think as much as, you know, we can analyze failures and learn from failures, which I 100% am behind, and um, we learn so much from our failures, I think there's so much serendipity in this sector. When I was early on just starting uh, Nextleaf uh, with Martin, uh, my co-founder uh, and CTO, um, I was pregnant and, uh, with my first kid and, or that's not true. Sorry. Yeah. I was pregnant with my first kid and a really good friend of mine, also an incredible social entrepreneur, uh, Preeti Radhakrishnan had, um, she'd started IMAC was having incredible success and she'd gone to pop tech, which was this 10 day conference. And, uh, it was a 10 day workshop and conference, kind of like Ted where there's a fellowship and whatnot. And I said, Preeti, there is no way I am going to a 10-day conference. I have, I'm going to have a young three-month-old at that time. There's just no way. And she essentially muscled me into going. And so I somehow made it work. It was 
really hard. And um, I went and I met Kevin Starr from the Milago Foundation. Yeah, I interviewed Kevin. He's brilliant. Great guy. God, Kevin is brilliant. So, so had I not gone to Pop Tech, I never would have met Kevin. I, you know, maybe now potentially somehow it could have happened, but I, I really believe it just wouldn't have happened. I mean, I, I haven't sort of had an opportunity to run into him since then. And um, so I met Kevin and he's ended up being one of the most instrumental mentors in our, in our, you know, growth and, and even helping us just define what we do and, and how we kind of fit into this whole thing. I mean, I can't even begin to sort of elaborate on all the ways that Kevin has sort of been instrumental in our sort of becoming who we are. That was pure serendipity. I mean, yes, Kevin and I connected and, you know, we had fantastic conversations and we had a great time playing ping pong that night. You know, like there's, so that was, that was fine, but had I not gone, it wouldn't have happened. And, and I've gone to a number of other conferences since then and, you know, nothing amazing has happened. So it was just luck really that, that I, I got that chance. So, you know, I think it's really tough, but I, I think if I was to try to kind of summarize the good advice that I've gotten that does seem to work, it's to just continuously put ourselves out there. And it's really tough and it's exhausting. And especially, you know, for people who are the face of the company and sort of at the helm and bear a lot of that responsibility for the company and, and feeding mouths and um, all of the stuff that keeps us all awake at night. Um, it can be exhausting. And yet that belief in serendipity, along with kind of the inspiration of kind of seeing the sectors that we serve um, or the customers that we serve, um, those are the things that kind of help me kind of keep going and, and continue to put myself out there. Brilliant. What about funding? Annie, what's your experience been? And again, I, I know you don't like giving advice, but you have succeeded and in raising, you know, various kinds of funds. What is there to say? So some advice that I got early on that I, I think has continued to be useful is, um, actually, I, okay, there's two things that, two pieces of advice that I've gotten, um, that I think have been really useful. One is really connecting with the right funder. So I, I think there's a temptation to try to kind of blanket, um, blanket the, the, the funding sector and, and approach every donor and then just push really hard. And I found that it can be much more effective to be very selective. Um, even say no to some donors if there's just not a great fit. Um, and, and actually not leave every door open and really focus resources on the funders where there's a great mutual fit where when I succeed, they succeed. And when they succeed, I succeed. So really looking for that mutually beneficial relationship, um, I, I think is, is the one thing and being really selective about that. And I think again, I mean, we've been incredibly lucky and, um, have had very supportive partners. Um, you know, one of our partners, Village Reach, um, really kind of got us in front of the Gates Foundation. Um, in a way that may not have happened otherwise. And that's been a hugely mutual beneficial partnership where, um, you know, one of the Gates Foundation's major indicators is um, how many vaccines do they get to children that are effective? 
And so that's one of our major indicators, it turns out, um, in the work that we were doing on cold chain monitoring. So, you know, that was a great fit. Um, we measure impact the same way they measure impact. So it's awesome. Everyone's really happy. Um, and so that was really, um, you know, because of one partner, Village Reach, who um, really kind of put us in front of them. Um, I think the other thing that uh, the other piece of advice that we've gotten in terms of funding that um, I think is really right is don't take your eye off the ball. Um, I think that's something that especially as, as the person at the head of the company, ultimately fundraising is our responsibility. We may have fundraising staff. We may have a team. I mean, I personally don't. I have, you know, a couple of staff who are able to allocate significant time to supporting fundraising efforts, and it's fantastic. Um, but ultimately, it is our responsibility. And um, that is our role. And and if we don't love it, then, you know, we need to find somebody else who loves it to to kind of take on running the company. Because in terms of fundraising, people want to see the head of the company showing up at the events, being at the meetings. And so... Um, it's it's just part of the job and and really kind of not taking um not taking your eye off the ball and uh, you know this is something that um last year actually as we had a rapid massive year of scale last year um i actually took my eye off the ball and so we're still suffering the consequences of that a little bit um and so um I think those are probably the two pieces of advice that I have. And um, I'm always happy to uh, talk with people. So, if, you know, I mean, I may regret this, but really, I, you know, I'm happy to sort of be connected with your audience. And um, if anybody wants to talk about this more, um, I'm happy to, because it's a really tough road. And um, we are, um, to a large extent, you know, we are on our own to really figure this stuff out. But um, as much as my experiences and, um, uh, you know, can be useful to others. I'm, I'm really more than happy to connect with individuals and, and kind of dig into some of these details and um, help problem solve. That's a very generous offer. And thank you. And uh, I'm sure you'll be taken up on that. But it's a long and hard road. And when you're doing it on your own, it's even harder. One last question is just you mentioned the impact, the way you measure impact coinciding with the way the Gates Foundation in, in this particular area. How big a challenge is it to measure impact? And again, final insights on how to approach that question. Impact is a really big buzzword. And, you know, there's a lot of I think really interesting, big soul searching uh, questions that really come out of it. One of the things that I love about the Milago Foundation, uh, there's many things I love about them, uh, but one of the things I love about the Milago Foundation is that they, they think about and they talk about impact a lot. They're so rigorous. And yet I think they're very wise in realizing that there's many ways to think about and talk about and measure impact. And so as all of us, you know, sort of move forward to measure our own impact, um, and I think, you know, we're all very dedicated and committed to it, I do think it's important to be open to the fact that there's many ways to measure it and that quantitative metrics are, of course, important. They're not the only measure. Um, and to really try to be creative in the way that we're creative about our businesses to also be creative about measuring impact um, because it is expensive. We have to do it. Um, you know, we all want to do it. It's necessary to improve our own quality of what we deliver. It's necessary to communicate um, what we do. It's, it's, you know, necessary ultimately to ensure that we're all kind of achieving 
what we hope to achieve. Um, but there's many paths to measuring impact. And especially now, as you know, we all start talking about randomized controlled trials, um, which, of course, um, you know, have a certain value. Um, I think it's really important to still always um, step back, be critical and creative about um, how we think about and talk about and communicate and measure impact. But I think the number one most important thing that we're trying to implement at NextLeaf is to always focus on being very transparent and about both the assumptions that we have to make um, when we're measuring and communicating impact, um, as well as kind of how we get to the numbers that we get to. And so to that end, we're close to kind of posting, we've, we've kind of come up with an internal methodology that's well documented now. We share it with our funders. Um, we're close to kind of posting that explanation on our website so that when you come to our website, yes, we hope that you'll see the, you know, the flashy numbers and, um, you know, we're very proud of the scale that we're achieving, um, in countries and, um, the kinds of penetration that we're getting. Um, but at the same time, we're also trying to be very transparent so that we can continue to build on the brand that we have, which is a brand that's very much built on integrity, um, and transparency. So, um, so that's, that's a little bit about how we think about, uh, impact at NextLeaf. But, you know, the, I guess the, the, the short response though is that, um, one of the things that we're really uh, lucky is that the intervention that we deliver is literally also how one measures impact. So we build sensors. Um, they produce a lot of quantitative data and we, uh, you know, have analytics and we, uh, sort of are able to measure impact very directly. And we're, we're very lucky in that way. Um, but I think there's lots of ways to get there. And what's your vision of your impact in the next five years? In the next five years, we hope to see about, uh, you know, the five-year one is tough. I don't have well-thought-out numbers for you. I can give you some approximate numbers. So, well, for five or ten years, how do you think about the future? What kind of time frame do you set your vision or th think about it, and what is that? Yeah, so, so in the next three years, we hope to see 10 million babies um, receiving vaccines that are protected with cold trace, which is, um, uh, our remote temperature monitoring sensor that goes into refrigerators or other remote temperature monitoring sensors. Um, you know, in terms of how we think about scale as well, we're not, and we don't want to be the only solutions provider. Um, so, um, so in three years, we hope to see roughly about 10 million babies, uh, receiving vaccines that are protected in this way. On the cookstove side, in about three years, we hope to see about uh, 50,000 households, 50 to 100,000 households that are using the cleanest stoves, which means that they see reductions in particulates of up to 50 to 80 percent reductions in particulates, which is what we need um, to start approaching in order to start getting both health as well as the climate impacts that, that we would like to see um, in terms of reduced mortality um, and uh, improvements in climate. They are great ambitions and I wish you the very best of success with those. And thank you so much, Nietzsche, for taking the time today to share your hard-won experience and insights. And I wish you the very best. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me and good luck to everyone out there. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur Podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com 
and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.